Hello and welcome to the, the Drywall, Drywall Podcast. Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Harmon. I've been in and around the drywall industry for more than 20 years. I've worked in the union, finished piece rate, and worked hourly with many different companies and people spanning the West Coast and beyond. The Drywall Podcast will be exploring the world of drywall and interviewing the professionals that make it happen. We are extremely excited to have industry legend with us today, Buck Buchanan. Did you ever wonder where drywall came from? Uh, Buck is an industry expert dating all the way back to the 1970s. He's written three books, including his latest, Behind the Walls, which tracks the history of the EFS industry and how that product came to be. All the houses that are built, particularly in your area and my area, is interior plaster. Yes. Big deal. And then drywall came in in 69, or in the late 60s, or late 50s, rather, and really started taking the market on and really replacing plaster. So a lot of the plastering contractors evolved into being drywall contractors. Oh, I like this. We also discuss how a meager product like drywall was able to topple the plaster giants of the day and shape an industry into what it is. We talk about his outward focused projects and dynamics of writing books and he also gives me a couple insights into how I can market Fresco Harmony. This podcast is brought to you by Fresco Harmony. Fresco Harmony is the world's first color joint compound system to create beautiful walls. Whether you're going over existing painted texture or level three finished drywall. This is my new least favorite place I've ever been. I spent a lot of time here. But trust me, it doesn't get any better. We'll be discussing all things drywall. This concept began with the Facebook groups picking unique topics, discussing application techniques, and the characters and the comedy that ensued. Let's get into it. Hello, sir. Nick, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Welcome to the Drywall Podcast slash local cast. You fish at all? Yeah, I actually a little bit. I've got a I got a grandson that loves to go fishing, so I take him when we have time. So I read you have a few grandchildren, correct? Yeah, I got five of them. Oh my gosh, he must be in heaven. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> They range anywhere from 14 to um, actually 15 to two. So uh, oh, okay, it's a good range and they keep you going. So uh, yeah, they say the only thing better than, uh, than ch- having children is having grandchildren. Is that true? Yes, because you can give them back. That's right. That, and that is, that's a standard response. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Cool. Right. Buck Buchanan. Uh prolific could we say prolific with three books i wouldn't call that but i wouldn't i wouldn't call it whatever you're running the show here i I would say uh pretty damn good though i can't imagine i've often waxed poetic about writing one book which seems like a lofty uh ambition but to write three um is a big deal to me Maybe it is to you too. I don't know. It's uh, it seems like a lot of work just to write one. <laughs> well, it, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like um, 
you know, once you do one, then you kind of know how to do one and then you can do two and, and go from there. So, right. So the first one probably took you a while. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Um, cause you, you kind of had to figure it out. So, uh, when you, when you write a book and, and I'm one of these guys, I was a business guy. So I got a degree in business administration and yep. if you um, all of my teachers through my my educational career, uh, who was the least likely person to ever write a book, that would be me. So I was no English scholar by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but once you start writing, you kind of figure it out on your own, and and then it makes sense. So uh, uh, that's, that's kind of, I said, I'm going to write this book, and I can tell you the story of how I got into this if you want to know it. We got it. We got like an hour. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I am interested in, I am interested in, um, like, so I'm interested in goals, goals and achieving goals. Now what you said there piqued my interest. You said, I'm going to write this book. You didn't say, yeah. I'm thinking about writing a book. You didn't say it, wouldn't it be nice if I wrote a book? You said, I'm going to write a book. And I think that when when we have goals, that is a really paramount aspect to achieving is the action behind the goal is the declaration or the attitude of this is going to happen. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And that's got to be that probably was something that had to happen with you when you decided to write the book first and 30. Correct. Yeah. What might be. Interesting for you and, and your listeners is because you mentioned a minute ago about setting goals and you got to set the goals to achieve things. And I, I'm, I'm a big believer in that as well. And so how I got to write the book is kind of an interesting story. Yeah. We were at our 40th high school reunion and everybody's standing around and, and you would do a reunion and, they're talking and they're telling stories and they're going on and, and, and somebody says, somebody ought to write a book. And so I'd had several adult beverages by that time. And I sure. said, the book. <clears throat> so anyway, fast forward a couple of years later. So I'm giving a sales presentation in Las Vegas to a bunch of sales guys. And I get up and give my spiel about sales and sales management and how to manage sales teams and blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and then this, I sit back down at my desk and this lady sits down next to me. And she's a consultant. Um, and she says, you can make a living doing that. I said, what are you talking about? She says, the way you talk to people, I mean, you can communicate, you got eye contact, you got sense of humor, you got awareness, the audience, but you need to write a book. I said, what the hell do I need to write a book for? Well, that gives you credibility. So ah. you talk about sales and sales management, and then you can become a, a world-renowned speaker. Sure. We, I, I mean, this kind of blew me away, so I, I, we talked a little bit further. As we talked, I, I said, i tell you what. I'm going to write that sales and sales management book, <laughs> another book first. And so that's how I got into writing to begin with before you got into the second book i mean there's got to be a ton that you learned it, it i mean there's no doubt about it you learn as you go so when i learned 
when I did the first one, I certainly learned a, a great deal. And when I got the second one, I, I used those, that, what I learned there for that. And then by the time I got to the third one, I continued to do it. And I think you continue to learn as you go. The timeline, I started this in um, the summer of uh, 2014. And that's when I started doing some research and I started interviewing people. That's recent. Yeah, I, I, I finished uh, the manuscript by the end of the year. And so now, so now I got a manuscript. And then I say, well, what am I going to do now? I'm going like, duh, now what would I do? So I had the opportunity if a buddy of mine went to high school with, his wife is a New York publishing house author. Okay. She printed, she's published about, at that time, probably eight or nine books. So I called her up and I said, Gretchen, what do I do now? So she, we talked about it and she told me, she says, well, you need to call this guy that lives out in Reno, Nevada. He's an editor. So I called this guy in Reno, Nevada, and I said, hey, I'm a guy that wrote a book and never wrote a book before. Yeah. Edit it for me. Love it. He what's said, his name? Let's hit, What's his name? Let's give him a shout out. So uh, Deke Castleman is the Deke guy. Castleman. He, he now lives, um, I think he's in Flagstaff now, Arizona. So that's where he is now. But he, he was a career uh, editor and writer. He worked in New York. Um, so he'd been around a while. So I, anyway, Deke says, well, send me your manuscript and I'll take a look at it. So I sent him the manuscript. He calls me back a couple of days later and says, I looked it over. I'll do the deal for you. So anyway, it went from there. So uh, he was a good guy to work with. I had, it was a fun guy to work with. And uh, so I, I used him for that book and then I used him for the last two books as well. Sure. So when I write my, <laughs> when I write my first book, Deke, I'm going to be, I'm going to send it to you. Check it out. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. No problem. <laughs> Color joint compound 101. Yeah, that's um, right. How did you get into this industry would be my next from a business degree to how you got into this industry. Where, where did that happen? Well, that's another interesting story is most people have interesting stories. Sure. When I graduated from college, uh, I graduated. Then it dawned on me that I got to have a job. Graham was doing at the time. Graham was trying to build up their management team by hiring kids just out of college smart and so anyway i was there four years and four years i had three promotions so i was a a rising star but i, I realized that i wasn't making any real money to speak of because Graham's mentality was basically it's union-based and you got to be there long enough and every year you're there you get a little bit more not necessarily how you go up the ladder so anyway, okay for a job so i run into this guy and he says man we've got this stuff and it's it's world changing material it's something that came out of germany it's going to revolutionize construction who was that who was that his name was jack brennan okay so he's he's in the book okay so anyway he says, well, go to, you call this guy here. This guy, it was his regional manager, said he was looking for somebody in Atlanta. Anyway, more long story short, they hired him. 
Yeah. I didn't know anything. I, well, now, I wait, they, did they hire you for sales? They hired me for sales. I okay. was a guy working for Stowe at the time. Stowe was a German company that had just come. They came over to the States in 1979, set up shop in Rutland, Vermont, which is in the middle of nowhere. Um, anyway, so I, so I was hired as a sales guy. And, and from that point on, I, I had basically had to learn the business on my own because there, there weren't any training tools. There weren't any sales manuals. There wasn't anything like that. So that is how I got into the business, just because I knew a guy that they happened to be looking for somebody, and, and I went to work for him. And so okay. I out and I went to work for him in uh, October of 2000, or at, yeah, October 1980. 1980, I went to work for him as a sales rep. Okay. I, by the a year later, I was a national salesman. Wow! And that's how you—that's how you knew all these people. That's yeah, how you got—that's how you got to know all these people in the industry. Yeah, because what happened was—I mean, I worked for one company, but we soon found out that the the industry was evolving. There were other companies that were uh, coming around. Drive it had started the business in the U.S., and from that, other companies had gotten into business because they saw what Drive it was doing, which was had become very successful doing it the first 10 years of, since they introduced the product in 1969. Okay. So companies were coming in and one of the things that you have when you have fledgling industries is you don't have, a. It, it's kind of like a wild west. Everybody's making claims, making statements and making accusations. And, and so about what your product will do and what the other guy's product won't do and your stuff's good and their stuff's bad and, you get into all this, well, that filters into the architects, into the builders and the contractors. And yeah, they say, listen, I don't want to be in the middle of all that. So the in, these companies started getting together and say, man, we better put some standards together. And and that's kind of how I got to know all these people because the, the industry began to bond and association was formed. And from that point on, uh, we worked as individual companies, but then we also had an industry that was really the driving force to, to really put uh, EFs on the map right after uh, Drive It had gotten things started. I like that. They went from talking trash to connecting. Yeah. They realized that, oh, if we connect, then we can sell more product. Yeah. Smart. Um, and, and so would you say that was the formulation of the AWCI? Well, no, AWCI had been around a long time. Okay. And and they had catered to, uh, obviously, the wall and ceiling industry. So that's drywall. But plaster was a big part of AWCI's portfolio before drywall came in. So interior plaster back in, right. in after World War II, all the houses that are built, particularly in your area and my area, yeah. was interior plaster. Yep. So Big deal. And then drywall came in in 69 or in the late 60s or late 50s, rather, and really started taking the market on and really replacing plaster. So you, a lot of the plastering contractors evolved into being drywall contractors. Because the problem, the problem with plaster has always been the plaster guys will get pissed, but it's expensive and it's hard. That's why they switched to drywall. <laughs> like, right. 
So I'm sure at this point in the timeline of the history of drywall, plaster was probably here and drywall came out and, and everybody just started to switch over because it was sure. more affordable. It was faster. The contractors don't care. They just want that house done, right? right. So tell me a little bit about your experience living through and seeing that shift. That's interesting to me. Well, I, when I got in the industry, the shift had really taken place, but there were lots of people that had had lived through the shift and had been part of it. So a lot of plastering contractors that we were selling product to had been through this because their daddies had, you know, been in business since World War II and they right. the business. And so they it's, had that evolution come. And you get a lot of those stubborn old guys that are like, this is how we've been doing it for years. And yeah, by God, I'm not going to change anything, you know, right. kind of. That's right. That's right. I mean, construction is the worst place in the world for that. They don't want to change. So why do we want to change? We've been doing it this way for a hundred years. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, getting people to change is, is a challenge. So, yeah. But, but the, but the drywall again, if you go back, drywall was invented back in the early 1900s. It never really materialized until uh, World War II, and it became popular when they were building Quonset huts. Well, they used them during World War II in the Pacific, mainly for housing and hospitals and so forth, and they used drywall on the inside because that was flexible and easy to bend. And I did not know that. That's cool. That's kind of how it catapulted that business forward. And then after World War II, there were some people that had been, had seen this product used. They said, you know what, that'll help us in building houses and we can build them quicker because it takes too long to do the three-step stucco or four-step stucco or, pla or la plaster on the inside rather. And so that's where it kind of boomed. And, um, and, and then from then on, it went forward. So by the time I got in the business, um, in the East world, we sold to the plastering contractor. That was the guy we were wanting to sell to. Well, again, because so, the plaster guys are good with the hawk and trowels, right? Right. Were they doing the exterior cladding? Yes. A lot of them did. Okay. A lot of them did. And they but were, they were using stucco, right? Well, stove. well, stove was really uh, just mainly an Eves company when they came into the, to the U S. Okay. And Drive It was an East company as well. They started it. So you really had stucco. So like where you live, you had three-coat stucco, which was done on every building, every house, everywhere. Yeah. It, we sold to the plastering trade and the okay. how we had that's how we kind of got involved with the drywall people, because they used to be plasters. But when the East business came back in, these old line original plasters said, Man, this is a way to get back in get my guys using hawks and trowels again. And we really like that business. Ah, he's kind of helped rebirth the plastering industry. Yeah. Basically put out of business by drywall business. Right. That's interesting. So, and, and it's still kind of like, you know, and no shame against plaster and stuff. I know that people love their plaster. Um, you know, it looks beautiful, like all of that stuff. Um, there's just no denying the complication and expense. That that part is challenging. Well, and then and today, frankly, there's there's really nobody that can really do interior plaster like it used to be done. Now, when you were marketing to 
They were drywall guys, but they used to be plaster guys. Now you're marketing EFs to them. They get to bust out the plaster tools again. That yeah. that that was appealing. Um, I guess in that in that regard, you had to start working with the drywall guys a little bit. But you had minimal knowledge of drywall, correct? Yeah, yeah. But you know, you got to realize that there weren't anybody that there weren't but about three people in the United States knew what EFs was in the first place. So crazy. You had to kind of learn on your own. And the, and the way you learned is by talking to contractors because they're the ones that really could tell you how things really work, you know, what was the process. And you could show them your materials and say, here's what they do. And they, and they figured it out really quick because they knew how to use the tools. And I right. think that, that that's the analogy that you go between what Eves did and, and almost in kind of what you're trying to do now. Yeah. Well, and I've been told like, you know what, you need to market to stucco guys, <laughs> but stucco guys nowadays, they never go inside the house. That's right. And the drywall guys use a pan and knife a lot up in Canada. They use a hawk and trowel. So that's yeah. an inner, I'm trying to get these knife and pan guys to use a spreadable. It's, it's a little foreign to them. Well, you know, the, the problem that, that you've got is, is that the USGs, the Nationals, and these guys have got the world thinking that let's put this stuff up really quick. Let's throw up, you know, the joint compound, and then we're going to paint. And then, you know, yes. even the level five finishes are, you know, they're rare, rare these days. But yeah, uh, and you're kind of in between that, okay, we got the, we got the wall up. And we've taken joints, we've sanded a little bit. Now what do we do? And you're somewhere between there and yeah. the five finish. And and then to get contractors to buy into it, that it is really something that's going to save some money because you're saving, you're improving the finishing of it and you got the color in it. So you've eliminated the painting step and you've you've lessened the cost of smoothing out the wall from where a level five finish is. I would guess. Yeah, it's a, the, we call it an imperfect smooth because also I, I also I have a theory of level five that I don't really like. That I don't aspects about level five that I don't like is that it's super time consuming. It creates a lot of dust, and in the end of the day, it's hard to patch. It's yeah. still never perfect. You shine a light down a wall; it's a nightmare, and so. I I come in saying, well, if texture is okay, you either have texture or you have level five. Why can't you just have kind of a smooth surface in between where you don't have to sand all day, but it still looks smooth to the to the homeowner or client? Yeah. That's where I, that's where Fresco Harmony kind of falls in, and less sanding and better yeah. coverage. You know, I mean, I I can tell you this in, in from the east perspective because we made acrylic finishes and we. Right. Over time, uh, the companies I were, was with, we tried to get in the interior business because we said, man, we got the products. Yeah. Well, let's sell into it. Well, the problem we had with that, was number one, we didn't know anybody on the inside because we dealt with people on. Love yeah, it. <laughs> talking about architects, interior designers. Yeah. Builders. So that was one problem that we had. And and so that was the people that are specifying the product. And then you got so real quick, real quick, you were a little farther down the line of selling Eves 
to the point where you were at this point primarily targeting exterior people. Yes. And the interior, that's where the division of the exterior and interior probably became more solidified. It did. It did. But, but again, we thought it's a tremendous market opportunity, but yeah, we couldn't, we didn't, we weren't selling to the decision maker and then the contractors we had, although they had, had been plasters at one time and now they're drywall finishers, they still weren't ready to pick up the, the ball and run with it, so to speak. Right. So the, the concept was there, but we never could get the execution right because there was never enough mass to to make make the math, the math work, so to speak. Uh, and you gotta you gotta develop some disciples. You gotta get guys out there. Yes. When they talk to a builder or when they talk to a general contractor and they say, I got something that'll work for you, and they gotta say, here's what I'll do that wall for you for, and let me show you what it looks like. You get guys like that, then you're gonna be okay and you'll be able to grow your business. You know, it's funny. That's one of my sales strategies for new adapters. I'm always like, do find a builder that you have a good relationship with. I'll send you a free color pack and do a wall in there for free. Do a wall for free. They can pick any color they want after that. And it once they see it, let the product sell it itself. Um, and so you guys gave it a shot with the acrylic stuff, but you're saying it didn't really, it didn't really work because you couldn't sell it to the decision makers. Yeah. And then again, the other problem we had too with it was, is it an artistic finish or is performance, performance finished? So the aesthetics, you, you could kind of get that sold, but then the cost would wet white part of that out because yep. I don't want to spend that much money. And so you would end up, if you were doing an apartment complex, you do the entryway into the, to the to the leasing office, and that would be it. You know, yep. in all the apartments. And yep. so, because again, the, the math never worked out. We never could get the the dollars and cents worked out where it made when you took the cost and the labor cost and added that together, you can never get the math to work out from painted drywall. And that's really what at the end of the yep. day you're. Yeah, I'm competing against painted textured wall. Yeah. 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 And, and no, no qualms about it. That's a, that's a great finish and it's durable and it's easy to patch. And you know what though? I want to compete. I want to figure it out. Like I'm, it's very interesting. <laughs> and see again, you're, you're also competing with production guys versus somewhat of artisans. And so people that are craftsmen, you know, and that was the thing about the plasters. Yeah. They, the plasters and the guys that you could do plaster work were really consider themselves more of a craftsman than a pure mechanic. Yeah. Oh, drywall is taking all the craft out of it because it's just it's a mechanic. But well, careful, careful now, Buck, because those drywall guys they are proud of what they do, and being a drywall guy and the finish work now. I'll say this: like you know, I do. I created a specialty wall finish system. I also do drywall. It's no more difficult and even I would say less difficult than learning the skill of drywall. Now you've got these guys with all this skill that do interior finishes and they look beautiful, but they're not making the money and they're not considered artisans. They're considered yep. they're considered commodities and that's just not true. 
I'm like, take that skill that you have and go make some money with it by doing a specialty finish. Yeah, no, I agree, I, I agree with that. I agree with you that. Know? I mean, and but that's the, what you said is absolutely right. That tends to be the opinion in the construction industry about drywall is that, oh, you guys are way down here, even under paint. And to me, the skill level of finishing proper drywall is way above that of a painter. No shame to painters, but there is a lot of skill that is unappreciated in the drywall world. You're right about that. But but again, in the whole, you got to look at the whole. The whole of it is yeah. pure commodity mechanical process. Yep. Is the repetition because they've got it to the point where yep. You particularly you take some of the, the track builders. I mean, it's all production. Yeah. How much production can we get? How many feet of drywall can we get up? You know. Yeah. When they build apartments, like I I live in Atlanta area, they build apartments. They they're just how many boards can we get installed by the day, and they sell it by the piece. Yeah. Paid by the piece to the to the contractor. So that's just purely run gun. Yeah, here's here's my response to that, and then we can we can shift. But I love this. I love the, talking about this stuff. Uh, is like for a long time there, they were doing like laminate countertops, you know. Yeah. But now you can't get away. I don't care if it is a track house. You can't get away with putting a laminate countertop in a track house. It's got to be granite. And there was a long time there they were doing cheap countertops, and at some point they switched over to granite. And that's all I'm saying. Like. The, the, you know, once you could come in with a proper price point and a time schedule that works, a Pulte or a large home building company could start doing special a special wall house and they could pump them out if it's the right product and if the speed's there. But you, the reason they were able to do that is they learned how to cut marble. And okay. so they're using CNC machines and things like that. Yep. Put the marble and the granite and so forth. Whereas before the Formica, that was it was just you know a saw could cut it. Okay. So they the technology evolved to where you didn't have to go have somebody cut it in Europe and bring it over here. You know, guy down the street can fabricate it now. He can cut the the stone for you to fit whatever. And so that opened up that whole market. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Still, still probably doubled the expense on countertops, I would say, just the material alone. Yeah, it did. But they price out of the drywall. That's what they did. What's that? They cut the price out of the drywall. They always cut the price out of the drywall. <laughs> the drywall so got- pay, for, pay for the granite countertop. And, and the beautiful front door. So yeah. now, now you've got a surface that consumes about 0.5% of the house versus- 80% of the visual space, you're going to take money out of the 80% of the visual space in a home and insert it into a very limited amount of space for a very small aesthetic benefit. Right. I'm saying spend a little extra on a large aesthetic benefit. Keep the granite. Who cares? Spend 15% more and have walls that you don't shudder every time you go in to your home, your new home. <laughs> because that heavy skip trial on the ceiling is so like atrocious, you know, yeah. you can't, <laughs> you can't bear it's to awful. look at it. Yeah, it's it's awful. awful. It's awful. I mean, you know, and I, I would, you know, I would rather have level five or plaster, any kind of plaster than, you know, ugly skip trial or orange peel, you know, it's just, yeah. 
It's just a, I think it's a placeholder. Texture is a placeholder until something better comes along. I think you're right. I think you're exactly right. I mean, it used to, you, before you did the texture, they had the popcorn ceilings and those were. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're, co we're covering one right now. My guy is covering a popcorn ceiling right now. So shout out to all those people that installed popcorn ceilings for the years that it was popular because it's keeping a lot of us drywallers in business, <laughs> taking it back down and restoring it to a, a more beautiful finish. Okay. I love it. I love it. Um, so this is good stuff. And, and I love that. I love your, uh, your knowledge about sort of these, uh, you know, the nooks and crannies of this industry that are just like a mystery to me. It's like, why are they still doing texture, you know? And it's like, well, there's a reason, you know, there's a reason for that. Um, so you, you wrote a business book, but you, um, you, and then you tour and you do, uh, you do like you've spoken in front of people. Yeah. And you also do business consulting. And so are you still currently president of uh, Buchanan Business Consulting? Yes. Okay. So that's a that's a business that you have. Yeah. And you consult with other business owners on what? Well, it's kind of a variety of things. It's just, you know, I still do uh, some, some work for the Trade Association for East, which is called EMA. I still do some stuff from them from time to time. Uh, and then I work from, for business owners. Uh, I've got a client right now that's going through uh, uh, the sale of his business. So he's never been, he never sold a business before. And I actually was involved in a lot of that when during my career of buying businesses. So I've helped him with that and understand what he's doing with there. I've helped several people as they go through a transitional phase of their company. So the father wants to retire, turn the business over to the kids. Okay. How do you do that? Uh, and then some business strategy stuff like, you know, okay, what do you, what do we want to do? How, how are we going to get from point A to point B? How do we build a business plan? How do we develop a strategy? I, I do some of that. And then I also do uh, some coaching. Uh, okay. Coaching where I basically mentor uh, someone that's a, uh, the president, CEO, manager of, a, of an outfit, and I give them somebody to talk to. So, for example, you got a problem, and, you know, who are you going to turn to? Well, I'm going to go talk to my wife tonight when I get home, and, and she wants to watch, <laughs> listen to what the hell I got to say. So, you, so you, you know, I offer that as a, as a place where people can, can, you know, we can talk about it. You know, okay, here's what came up. What do you think? I just uh -huh. through things. So, it's it's um, it's just part of what I do, and I really kind of do it as I'll get a call, you know, can you help me with that? And I'll say, yeah, I'll help you with that. So I really don't promote what it is because I'm I stay plenty busy doing what I'm doing as is now. I'm, I'm am writing another book, so nice. So that's coming, and and then the consulting stuff happens, and the book tours and, and signing events. Um, that keeps me pretty busy. And so I'm, and also the president of the local Rotary Club. So I got a lot of stuff in the, in the pipeline right now. What is that? I don't know anything about the Rotary Club. Well, the Rotary Club is a service organization and it's an international uh, group. So there's the Rotary Club in Albuquerque. I'm assure you of that. They've been around. I've heard of it. I just don't yeah. know what it is. What's the purpose? But what of they it? do is they, it's, it, they, they work with, 
in the community to help people that are in need. So, for example, our club here, last night we we, we have a place here where uh, recovering drug people, they're going through a program, they stay in this building, and we provide a meal to them once a month. There's yeah. Seven people in that guys in there, and we provide a meal, we go in and serve it to them, and they get to see somebody different and talk to some different people. Yeah. We do that with the women. We help several schools where they have um, problems with some of the kids that they need help, that need assistance. We provide books in some cases. We provide some tutoring in some cases. Um, we, we help veterans. There's a lot of people don't realize that there's a lot of needy veterans that uh, that are on hard times. And um, so we work with them and give them, help them get clothes and help them find places to go. Um, so we do a lot of veterans programs too. So it's just things in the community that, that help the community move forward. Okay. And Rotary does it at the local level. So your your Albuquerque club there or our club here, it's going to really work within the community. And then they also get involved in other programs throughout the state. So for example, if there's a disaster, uh, like when Katrina hit, the, the Rotary clubs pitched in big. Last year, there were the, the storms that hit up in western Kentucky, uh, and several of our members went up to help them, and some of the rest of us made contributions to them there. And then we do global projects where uh, it may be to purify water in South America, or it may be to help planting people in, in uh, Africa, or it could be for a reading program in the, in the Caribbean. So just anything you can imagine to help people that's what the rotary club's about Beautiful. self is the motto so uh it's a fellowship group it's a community group that you get people of like mind and and you move you move forward with it. service so, service of service, service service of self of service self. above self is the motto for the rotary club so between that rotary club church business consultant yeah grandkids little travel with my wife and yeah. play golf a couple of days a week. How much time do anything else? And sell a book here or there, you know? So yep. I played golf yesterday. Okay. Don't tell don't tell anyone. Um right. I snuck away. I missed two appointments that I had on my schedule, which I never do. Uh one of them being a dentist appointment. Like I have to like just to get around to 18 and I'm not I love I love to golf, but uh, it's such a pain. I'm I'm like inundated with stuff constantly, and I love what I do. But sometimes you got to just go play a round of eighteen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't have time for golf, so my my That's wife right. my wife told we had three kids, so she told me said you're not playing golf until the kids are all through with stuff. Oh wow! <laughs> and so I had one of my sons play college baseball, so. I didn't play golf till he got through playing college baseball. So anyway. Yeah, I'm coaching. I'm coaching my son's team. We have our first practice tonight. Uh um they're six, you know, you can imagine. Like yeah. it's a lot of it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I I love that kind of say I I mean that's service work as well. I love that. Uh, you yeah. know, that aspect of community. Deacon Chattanooga. We talked business. Where should we go from here? Well, I, I want to just, since you're interested in writing books, and sure, I, I, I tell people this when I talk about book writing, and it's amazing. People, a lot of people say, "Well, I want to write a book." Well, 
if you're going to write a book, the way you do it is, is decide you're going to write a book and then do it and then do a little bit every day. Yeah. Write a paragraph or write a sentence or write two chapters. You got to stick with it because otherwise you'll never get finished. Yeah, because you you glazed over that part of your story. You were like, well, I decided to write a book and then I had the manuscript manuscript done. And I was going to say, well, how did you... You know, did you have a time, and this comes up in, I, I've listened to other authors talk about how they write. Uh, yeah. it, it's come up in other conversations of like, you choose a time during the day or maybe in the morning where you write or every Monday I'm going to write a chapter or whatever. But yes, I've written long lengths of material, but it fizzles out. I haven't had the stick to and also the topic that I think that's also crucial. The topic needs to be really solid. Yeah, oh, I think so too. I mean, but 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 again, the other thing is this is I've got a sister and she's a she's an English major. She never wrote a book till three years ago. I finally she finally figured out that her little brother was was an English major, had written three books, and she better get on the stick. But she just writes short books that are of her interest level. And the point of this is, to me, writing is about telling stories. And I think it's important for us that have stories to tell is to, to write about it because it has to do with history. And the three books that I've written are, have history threads through all of them. Mm -hmm. And because number one is we need to preserve history, although unfortunately some people don't want us to in this country. Mm -hmm. but history is important because you learn from history yeah learn from what happened and and you you go back and if you read if you read first and 30 a lot oh, of them, i will i will read it <laughs> you you'll read in that you're going to like well hell we're doing some of that right now yeah years later we oh, yeah learn anything. yeah history repeats itself and it does and i think people need to pre preserve it i I talked to a veterans group a couple of weeks ago and I told them, I said, you know, you guys got stories to tell that need to be told. And because yeah. you need to preserve that history because you live through it. And I encourage people to do it. I, so I, I was with a guy, a couple, uh, we were on vacation. I ran into this guy and he was, he was actually born, his, his father was born in Germany and survived. He was 12 years old at the end of World War II. Well, his story was how his father survived just living because they, the daddy would have been killed in the war. The mom and three kids were trying to survive in the war-torn area of Germany and how that happened and how his father came over to the to North America and, and how this guy actually became a uh, went to the Naval Academy and became a commander in the Navy. That's the kind of stories that you want to hear because yeah. that's that's telling history about that, that people don't realize. And also mm -hmm. tells about what this country's about. And it's a really about providing opportunities for people Very. to come in here and, and do and work. There's opportunities for them. Very inspiring. Um, yeah. I, stories. I've written a couple of uh, blogs, uh, blog posts about, uh, um, 
the the history of fresco harmony like sort of sort of how it came to be a lot of people ask you know where, where did you come up with this and it's a long I, well, i'm always the same way it's like well it's a long story <laughs> you know yeah. i didn't just start you know i didn't just start putting color into a bottle and i think that's it i mean it, it's it's kind of like what you're trying to do and you are you're a pioneer mm-hmm. in, a, in a tough world so yeah you know and, and i think what you've got to do is just continue to to move forward, you got to get your disciple base built up. Yeah, people believe, and they say, "Man, I got to have Nick stuff, man." It, it's yeah. time, and then you get some builders that yep. there, and then you get an interior designer, and you know, you, you do a Marriott, and then you do housing, yep. and then you do apartment complex, and Turkey, and then you go to El Paso, and then you go to Las Cruces, and then you go to Dallas and San Antonio and so yep. that's the way it works. It's so. true, especially in this industry. Um, yeah, I'll have to call you and take you up on some of that business consulting. <laughs> uh, and reasonable rights. Okay, good, good. Joe was talking about uh, Joe uh, Koenig was talking about uh, my necessity to join the AWCI. Um, like he's like, you need to do that. Um, you know, it's it's expensive, uh, but for me, but like, you know, that's a those are marketing dollars. I think that would probably be well spent. And I, here's a here's a tidbit for you. So one of the reasons that the East industry got off the ground was that they joined AWCI. Right. And the reason they joined AWCI is it had those plasters that were converting into drywall. Yeah perfect time to go find the people that wanted the business yeah today drywall guys the big drywall guys not the local guys but but the nationwide regional guys yep. big guys are in the drywall business and it, it would give you the opportunity to, to network and get to know people and it's and the more people get to know you they're going to say well i'm going to try this stuff he, he's a good guy and i believe in what yeah. he says let me let's give that a try let's go That's find true. And that's how you do it. So you you got to build build your base. So it worked for the East business. I can tell you that. So my, it, it ought to work for your business because it's, yeah. I mean, drywall is a big part of that industry today. Yeah, yeah, it's huge. Um, and it also lets you learn, too, some things that you don't know. And you'll see other products or other techniques or, again, but you make connections. That's the big benefit I think you can, can see in that. Several yeah. committees that are related to the drywall. Yep. And yeah, it costs you some money and, and so forth. But you, you, if you stick with it, you'll build some relationships and yep. you build relationships. You're going to build your business because people still want to buy from people. Love it. That's uh yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's strategic dollars too. That's so much more valuable than, um, you know, an ad in a local, you know, um, yeah. You know, it's just so much more broad. It's a good use of it's a good use of resources. Uh, The podcast, this podcast, has been fantastic for that. It's opened up my mind to you know. I mean, I'm talking to you, and I'm also talking to drywallers from you know all over the country. And drywall shorty is going to be you know uh, Lydia Crowder from Bozeman, Montana is going to be on the next podcast and um all of these care and other guys that are coming up with new tools and ideas um and we're kind of in the same boat and they're sharing distributors that I should talk to and um 
it's so neat. It's just it, 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 what it does is it it hum it's humbling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's again, that's part of it, Nick. Is you you building your network, you're establishing connections, uh, and that, that that's really what's important. Is again, the more people you can associate with that know about you, they're going to spread the gospel of what you got to sell. Yep, yep. If you're doing something that, frankly, a lot of people have thought about. Yep. Nobody's been able to really execute it. it, it it's not uncommon. It, it, there is, uh, we, we bought a company called La Habra Stucco. La Habra Stucco and El Rey Stucco, which is, is right there in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. And they made, their primary business was finished stucco. Mm-hmm. Most part of the world, there's still a lot of cement finished stucco that's used outside. And the big sellers were color packs. And the color pack worked just like your bottle. You take yep. a 94-pound bag of, of stucco, and you add the color pack, which is eight or nine ounces. Yep. And that's what you do. So you didn't have to have 30 different <laughs> pounds. You had 30 different little boxes of eight or nine ounces. Yep. And it worked there. And we also did it really successfully with acrylic finishes. Where okay. On a, our big deal was to go through distribution and get, instead of selling color, which is made in the plant, we'd sell them white bases, and, and then they would either use their own tinning machines, or a lot of them would fill up tent vials. There you go. The bucket. So you're on to something that's proven, and it works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, it, and it, but it's really never been done successfully in the in the drywall business it's so weird uh and well, here another fun fact is ready mix joint compound mixes perfect yeah like just as good as paint it's all weighed yeah. out it's like the color from batch to batch is perfect crazy yeah i, I think it, it worked but again <laughs> you, you, what you're doing is you're changing the paradigm my friend mm-hmm. you don't you know <laughs> If you could ever convince USG or or National Gypsum to partner with you, uh-huh. Grand Slam. But uh, you and I ought to talk offline. I'll have another idea for you that I'll give you free of charge. So, uh, yeah, we will. We will. This has been an absolute pleasure. And what the hell, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna read your book. So uh, we'll we'll be in touch. Uh, whether or not it's uh, sending you excerpts from the book for you to edit and, and critique. Uh, just fun fact, everybody, I'm going to actually narrate uh, First and 30 for Buck Buchanan, and that's going to be available in audiobook, and you're going to hear yours truly reading flawlessly the entire thing. Well, the more you do it, the better you get, too. So, you know, you, you, yeah. you, you do the audio part, you got to say, well, I'm living the, the dream here. I'm in the moment, and I got to pretend I'm there. That's what you got to do. So, well, and also like, you know, am I going to make a million dollars from it? It's, it's kind of one of those things that like, I don't, you do stuff kind of the money's like secondary. That's always been uh that's been a staple for me. I do stuff for the, the enjoyment. Yes. I want to make money. I'm not an idiot, but like, uh, do what you love and um, make that your make that sort of a priority. If you want to do something, you know, go yeah. go after it. Yeah. I ask everybody that's been on the show if you could bestow a pearl of wisdom to the drywall uh, exterior community uh, on a global, national, and local level. What would it be, Buck? What would you tell them? Well, I think the 
you have an industry that you need to take care of. There's a lot of benefits to it. It's it's an opportunity to to make a great career and living out of it. But you got to do it right. You got to do it well, and you can't cut corners. So, you know, let's try to continue to bring the craftsman back to construction. And some of that's been lost because well, it's cheaper to do it another way. But it's a craftsman product. It's something to be proud of. And there's a tremendous opportunity to make a living in the field. And so many people think, well, I've got to be go to college. We go to trade school and learn how to do some of this. Tradesmen are, are in big need, and you can develop a career and be a great craftsman and establish a lot of pride in yourself. So let's put pride back into construction. I like it. That was a beautiful answer. Um, Buck Buchanan, author, uh, grandfather, father, Deacon, uh, business consultant, uh, and pretty much great guy as far as I'm concerned. Thank you for being on the Drywall Podcast uh, today. Um, this show, geez, 17, I don't know, something like that. But uh, this is also going to be on the local cast and the uh, Drywall Podcast. You can hear behind the walls the, uh, an hour of that book on the local cast. Currently, you don't get the whole book. You got to buy that on Amazon, but all of his stuff is available on Amazon and also booksbybuck.com. So thank you for being with us today. And um, yeah, we'll see you down the path. Nick, thanks a lot. Enjoyed it. Always <laughs> great talking to you. So look forward to talking to you again, my friend. All right, sir. You have a good day. We'll talk soon. All right. See you. All right, bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Buck Buchanan for being on the Drywall Podcast today. If you have questions or comments about the Drywall Podcast, you can contact me directly at info at frescoharmony.com. And be sure to like our Facebook and Instagram pages and catch us on the local cast. This podcast is brought to you by Fresco Harmony. Fresco Harmony is the world's first colored joint compound system to create beautiful walls. Whether you're going over existing painted texture or level three finished drywall. This is my new least favorite place I've ever been. I spent a lot of time here. Trust me, it doesn't get any better. Thank you for joining the Drywall Podcast today. We certainly appreciate it. Join us every Friday for new characters and topics specifically about drywall. Until next time, keep drywalling.